Welcome to Love and Compassion, the podcast where we explore different topics that may challenge our current belief systems and the fears that they generate. Our hope is that through dialogue, you, the listener, will be inspired and motivated in new ways on your own journey to living a more loving and compassionate life. Please welcome your host, Giselle Taraba. Hello, everyone, and welcome. My guest today is a registered psychotherapist and child and youth counselor. She's the owner of Wounds to Wings Psychotherapy and has extensive experience working with trauma, addictions, and poverty. She uses a body-centered approach called somatization to assist with trauma healing and was recently the 2019 People's Choice Award winner by Blacks for her work as a counselor. Please join me in welcoming the wonderful Nicole Brown Faulkner. Welcome, Nicole. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. We're living in what feels like very challenging times with COVID and the death of George Floyd, among others. It seems as our world is undergoing this collective grief and suffering. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how what's happening in the world may be contributing to kind of a global trauma, especially for some folks. Okay, we're going to jump right in. My comment to that, it's collective trauma, I think, that's going on right now, which really means that everybody kind of has been shifted in a way that, I don't know how to really say that. I, I think that people have been shifted because they are responding to the chaos, the confusion in the world, and people are feeling. I think before with the busyness and everything that was going on before, which busyness to me when I work with it is a response, like a trauma response anyways, I think that people are feeling and they're connecting in the space. Thank you. If you could go a little bit into how busyness is a trauma response, because in the world that we currently live in, we're very distractible. And so if you could just provide a little bit more info about how busyness uh, can be seen as a trauma response. Yeah, busyness can be seen as a trauma response because we are reacting. We're reacting to things all the time. And so we can fill it by doing things to avoid feeling. I'm trying to simplify this in a way. I think before all of this, the pandemic and everything like that, a majority of us were like moving and we were busy And we weren't able really to feel. We were just reacting. And now with the stillness, I think people are, instead of reacting to things, they're feeling and responding. And so I don't know how how to go, how far to go with that, other than talk about busyness being perhaps a trauma response to avoid feeling. Because I I tend to ramble and like talk on and on. No, no, this is beautiful. I did want to ask you, your comment that now we're dealing in stillness, it was so insightful because for so long, I think we've been avoiding ourselves with all these distractions. We never had to be with ourselves in kind of this being sent home, if you may, to our rooms, Mm -hmm. forcing us to sit with ourselves and be with ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so I I think that may be what's bringing up a lot of the trauma and issues. Absolutely. People are talking about this pandemic of fear and erratic behaviors. And like people are like, everyone's acting erratically and everything. But it's not erratic, actually. It's regressive. It's a defense mechanism. Am I jumping into it? It's due to a fear response, really. And Mm -hmm. I think that was brilliant. You kind of gave an image about being sent to our rooms. 
And I think that we have regressed. Like no one's talked about what's happened and why we are acting the way we are because of the pandemic. And I call it regression. So when we feel unsettled or we're anxious, uh, regression happens. And it's a way, when kids do it, it's a way that they get extra attention perhaps. But really, I think when adults do it, it's a way that we begin to gain and maintain a sense of control. And so when I work with it, I always say, well, what's the age of the image? Like, what is your age of this behavior? If you had to close your eyes and kind of go there. And I think the psyche, which is just our uh, mind and our spirit, our bodies have regressed because of it, because of the insecurity, because of the chaos, because of the confusion. And we have moved into fear and anger. It's a regressive response. It's uh, a fear response. That's interesting because there are different groups of people. Like some people are really trying to deal with this fear and anger with some compassion and understanding and other people are still stuck in judgment. But I like how you phrased it in terms of seeing it's not just the reactivity. It's a regressive behavior to address a lot of the unhealed grief and sadness that is that mm-hmm. may be in there. And it's mm-hmm. really progressive behavior to get back to what we need. Well, it's again, it's a sense of control out of what we don't have any control of. Mm-hmm. You could say the same for children, that they feel yeah. they need control. Yeah, children do it. You're right. The same for children. You see, in children, it's a way that they get extra attention or perhaps like gain or maintain a sense of control around their environment. Um, like toddlers do it uh, because they're trying to gain control, like master their identity, say, right? Or like mm-hmm. who they are, like, you know, they're kind of falling into themselves, noticing that they are separate from the parent. And so that's what you get there. But in adults, it's retreating to an earlier developmental stage. You see, like, we kind of don't think of it in adults, but you might know, like, some of the work I do is like inner child work. So you, you begin to deconstruct around the adult, like what is happening there. And so usually when I start deconstructing around, I start understanding what the, the survival strategy is around the inner child of the adult. So emotionally, socially, behaviorally, there's a regression that's happening there. It's a form of helplessness. So, yeah, yeah like, I'll, I'll say that. It was beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, this global or collective trauma can also be, and as you said, fear and anger can be an impetus for change. Do you think that post-COVID and post-everything that is happening around racism that this will actually finally be the motivating factor or the impetus for the world to look different? Well, I'm a hopeful person, so I'll say I hope so. I can say that I know that people are feeling, and I think that if you can't feel or have compassion for yourself, it's quite difficult to have that for others. And for some reason with the pandemic, people are collectively well if we're talking about regression like people are collectively feeling what they're feeling and they are then able to feel for others and i think the shift around what was what's happened has created that you see if this is not happening to me then i don't really care and i'm not saying it negatively i'm saying it to create context right so if it doesn't mm-hmm. affect me then you know what i'm busy doing something else or i'm connecting to the things that connect to me and with the pandemic collectively, we all felt this, this fear and this confusion, which created a unity, I think, in that, because we're all feeling now. I feel the fear for me, not knowing what's happening. So I can feel the fear for you. I don't know how to answer besides like, I hope so. 
I hope that we carry this level of consciousness with us for others. Wow, that was so very well said. As you were talking, I was reflecting on I feel. And one of the key aspects of compassion Mm -hmm. is awareness of my own suffering, if I'm practicing self-compassion, and awareness of the suffering of others, if I'm Mm -hmm. practicing compassion for others. And it's so true, we are moving to I feel. I think it is this collective feeling, this common humanity that we're finally getting at, which before, I think what you said was spot on. There's been situations where like, well, that, you know, that's so sad, but if it doesn't impact me directly, then I'm not going to be motivated to act. What's happening with COVID and even with all the recent events around George Floyd is that we're realizing that we're interconnected, that I can't be well unless you're well, that, that these systems impact all of us and that we are having this global feeling. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask the next question because you talked about this kind of global trauma, but there might be some individuals out there that actually are not aware that they're experiencing trauma or that they're experiencing these regressive feelings. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how we may hold trauma in our bodies and what kind of the most common signs are so that people can work towards being more, more compassionate to themselves? Sure. Yeah. And it's very common that people who are suffering trauma may not be aware of the trauma that their bodies are suffering because part of trauma is to dissociate, like move out of your body. So when working with trauma, the work is that trauma is stored on the body. Like our bodies have feelings. You might have stomach pains, chest pains, uh, choking sensation, shortness of breath. Like there's cravings of food, loss of appetite. And so that can be common symptoms for people, but people who suffer um, from trauma tend to have responsive bodies and they are not aware that that is connected to something. They just go, I just have a sense of stomach. I, I usually educate around emotions too, because when I talk about traumas, because uh, people don't know what they're feeling. So it's a bit complicated when working with trauma because you have to teach them that there's a feeling in there because with trauma, the part of the brain that, uh, we use to articulate feelings and all that gets shut off as part of like the survival response for the mm-hmm. body. And so I, I usually uh, let them know right away what emotions are when I'm doing things because it's energy, right? It's, mm-hmm. and it's energy that wants to move and it kind of gets stuck. It's a collection of sensations in the body and the brain that we give a name to. And it tells us how we are like in relation to a particular current situation. So someone can come up close to my body and I might have a feeling, so that's a feeling, and I name it, and then I say, I feel unsafe, or I felt frustrated. I I start to teach what your body is saying, what it might be doing, and then we start to embody, if that makes sense. I don't want to, like, take you for a walk with me and confuse you. You usually notice things like your body, so that's one, headaches, things like that. Your mind, a mind is, uh, is always trying to intellectualize what the heart's trying to feel, so the mind might be a worrying mind, a muddled mind, nightmares. You can come in emotions like we're talking about depression. When the energy gets stuck, it feels very heavy. So the symptoms of depression will come up. Uh, it can come up in behavior like stint prone or insomnia, substance use like smoking more, restlessness, you know. One of the things that I, I've noticed in my son in particular is that whenever anything emotionally laden happens for him, he gets a lot of tummy aches. Mm-hmm. So I think that's how kind of he processes his emotions. And I love the fact that we're moving towards connecting the physical body with the emotional and the spiritual because 
the medical model just doesn't treat it that way. There's no resolving what's at the root cause of this. It's like, here's your medication. It's symptom management. I think there's now greater and greater awareness of the connection and how that stored energy can have an impact on your well-being mm-hmm. and how addressing all of that stored trauma in the body, like you said, can help them get to the point where those physical symptoms or that trauma can be assisted. Mm-hmm. But currently, that's not it, it's not the the vocalization. So a lot of our listeners might be thinking, oh, you know, this is just a headache. Like you said, in general, I was born with a bad stomach when really all this stored emotions and unaddressed traumas that may be within there. Yeah, exactly. They're stories. These bodily symptoms I treat as stories, right? With children, I quite enjoy working with children um, as well, although I don't. But I I love it because uh, they're expressive right where they are. So I would say, allow your tummy to speak to me. What would your tummy be saying if it could talk? Because that's where they store their emotions, you see. And uh, Mm -hmm. then we could begin to work with that. And so with adults, the same thing, the check-in around like, what's your internal world? How's your internal world doing? Crying happens. So I'll say, if your tears could talk, what are they saying? Uh, It it allows the body to articulate, like you could speak for it because you don't really know until you kind of hold a frame around it so that we can begin to treat the trauma, which is an undiagnosed story. Let's hear the trauma memory. Let's begin to work with that, which is the work really in therapy, right? Just to add on to what you're saying there. For sure. That's so great. You just gave us a strategy right there in terms of checking in with ourselves. Like, what do I need right now? Mm -hmm. And if I'm experiencing something, can I talk to it and ask it questions? Can it tell me what it is that I'm feeling? And I think that's a great way to connect to I feel. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. Trauma-informed practice enables us to understand each other's behaviors through the lens of trauma. I was wondering how you thought um, trauma-informed practice can alter our views on addictions and mental health problems or criminal behavior, because a lot of the times we tend to villainize people Mm -hmm. instead of looking at these behaviors from the lens of compassion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I call it the othering. When we do this othering, like, well, them, we kind of separate ourselves. And in the separation is where we're disconnected from. We are all perhaps one. So when uh, trauma-informed practices actually inform you around the behavior, I think, like it gives information how to work with that. Now, uh, same with trauma-sensitive type of education. I I think that trauma work, like I've brought the trauma work from Boston here on the methodology of care which these are part of it, like trauma-informed is part of it, trauma-sensitive is part of it. The real trauma work is allowing uh, people to, uh, a methodology that allows people to choose a lot of options when working with them, like how they want to work, what they want to do. It begins to empower them and then allowing them to notice there's no power dynamic. That's the most important thing working with, with trauma, which really is what I should bring in. A lot of times coming in, I mean, informed practices are still a power dynamic in the room or when mm-hmm. working with people. But because we are one, when you work with trauma, you are one too with the client. They are the expert. What do they want to tell me? What do they want to share? Creates less othering, you see, which separates yeah. once you do that. So 
you know, trauma-informed uh, practice are, are great in regards to information and in trauma, how to do it. But the real work is trauma work and how to work with people who have suffered from trauma. I love what you said about empowerment, reflecting before this podcast on the quote by Pema Chodron, who, who talks about compassion. And she says that compassion is between equals. When you see your own darkness, that you can see the darkness of others and be able to work together to help hear our own suffering. So that's exactly what I thought about as you were talking. It made me think that's right. Like we want to create relationships and systems that are empowering. I don't need to be the expert. I don't need to tell you how to heal yourself. It really is about tapping into your own power and bringing it, which I, I think is how you work. I was wondering if on an individual basis, it might be easier, but in terms of systems, what systems could have greater awareness of trauma and greater awareness of how to create empowering practices. Mm -hmm. That's big because the system always make light and say, you know, I'm in the world, but I'm not of it. I always like stay on the edge so that I'm not part of a system as I work, even working in large groups the same way. You see with systems, I would empower the people, not the system, because the system will be there it was there before me, it'll be there after me. And so I feel it's a big feat, you know, but I think working with one individual at a time and in each individual, they are the world to me, right? Like inside each individual, if we are sharing about being one, each individual is the world or the universe. And so I deal with one person at a time and empower them. I bring consciousness to what's unconscious for them, for them to walk through their healing. I would empower people when I talk about you mentioned system. That's what I would do. I, I don't even touch it because it's so big. What do you think? I don't know. I feel it's quite big. I thought what you said was really beautiful and interesting. I was also reflecting on the whole defunding police movement. And where I landed on that thought was exactly what you said. We really can't eradicate these systems until our level of consciousness is such that we are no longer afraid of our brothers and sisters, that we don't fear them violating our rights or needing some other systems of control. And so you're right. I think the, the, the starting point is empowering the people, empowering individuals and assisting them or enabling or creating opportunities so that people can step up into their own power until these systems fall away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, systems are interesting because they were there. It's the way we norm each other or create a societal norm. And yeah. I'm like air quoting here because what is norm? You know, one of the things we're interested in doing is looking at systems mm -hmm. because I work in the child welfare system and, you know, got into that work because I wanted to help children and families, mm -hmm. all of the systems that I see are based on fear and control and power mm -hmm. over. They're not based on empowerment, trust, faith in lifting mm -hmm. people up. So you start to question where they originated. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the history, the history is one of control to maintain the control of a group mm -hmm. of people. So then you start to think, should the systems be shifted? of the individuals within the systems and those individuals that make up these systems or the laws for these systems, yeah. or do we work one-on-one -on -one with the individuals or both? So I think that's, that's the challenge, but like you said, it, it's big. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. You have to work with it from the bottom up, top down too. If mm -hmm. I'm working with a system, so I'm going into work in a, in an agency or something like that, I will train the top. So that's what we call it. The leadership team, stuff like that. 
and like staff. And then I work with the people, like, so their clients and all that. It's a tier approach because you can't work with the people if at the top, they are unconscious too. You have to build consciousness. And what is that? That is a reconnection to yourself because otherwise we are just unconsciously reacting all the time. And you want to be in a space where you can respond, which is very embodied to be able to observe and like notice and then respond to what you're responding to. It's a very projective type of society. <laughs> like, right. Like if we're not conscious, we're just projecting our stuff on everyone easily. I could do it too. Like going through a line at the grocery store and the cashier is a little bit upset. Then I might have a response personally. Like, why are you upset? It's a me, right? Like, you know, I have to be a body and wonder about her day. What is your home life like? Does she feel invisible? I have to really go, this is not me that she's being upset with so that I can be in a place of response and look at her and say, well, how are you doing? How's your day going? As opposed to react to her upset or her anger. Yeah, what's happening for you, right? What's happening for you Mm -hmm. that you are reacting Mm -hmm. this way? I just love what you said, talking about unconsciously reacting all the time. Most of the time has nothing to do with us directly. It has to do with how people are unconsciously reacting. Yeah, yeah, it's very complicated, but simple at the same time. (laughs) The province is reopening, you know, working towards phase two now and and so on and so forth. But there's so many people that are very afraid. They don't trust that people are being socially responsible. They don't trust that they'll be okay until there's a vaccine. But like you said, I believe that we are way more powerful and more empowered than we give ourselves Mm -hmm. credit. But when we're stuck in fear, we really only generate more fear. I was wondering what strategies you may share with us to shift ourselves even one degree away from fear. Hmm. Well, it's a big question. I'm going to simplify, I think. The, the way to work with fear is to feel. Because like, feel like um, fear is a response. So maybe um, there's a connection that needs to happen. Like, like a curiosity around like, well, what makes you feel unsafe? There's a story behind all of your emotions, all of our emotions, all of their emotions. I think just offering people a, a, a space to be curious around what that's about. What is my response about? I'm responding this way. Why am I scared to go back out there? And the thing is that all of us, it's a universal thing, is fearful because we've lost trust I don't remember a pandemic ever happening. And so if our system was distrustful, then we have to earn trust back into the system, me included. Do you know? Yeah. Because with the pandemic, I was shifted into terror for a long time. And that's a really regressive feeling Mm -hmm. for me. It's very young. And, Mm -hmm. you know, all of our stories are going to be ruffled up a little bit to be curious around why that is. Who did I not trust before? Why do I not hold trust? It's a really big question because universally we, we all are fearful because we, we've lost our trust. So, And it's, it's a great answer. Instead of running away from our fear, if I'm hearing you correctly, we have to be with our fear. We have to be present for ourselves mm-hmm. because that fear is telling us something. And I think mm-hmm. that's really important because so often, and, and this is why we've created this world where we're so distractible. And now we are like, you know, as we have both said, stuck in our rooms, <laughs> facing our fears. If we keep running away from the fear, 
it's not going to help us. When I've been afraid, when I've had the most fear, when I have faced my fears, I realized that my fear was bigger than the actual obstacle I faced. And for me, that was like something that was overwhelming because I had made myself suffer for so long. And when I was facing it, it wasn't pleasant, but I realized my own power. I'm more powerful than I think I am. I can get through this. I can do this. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a big awakening for me in terms of how I managed my fear. Yeah, very powerful. Yeah, there is a messenger, right? Like we, we wait for fear to subside, but fear never goes if we're honest about it. So to do the thing and bring your fear with you, because if you're waiting for it to go, it may not. It actually feeds it. It gets bigger. So it's to befriend it and carry it where you go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's the key to empowerment. Mm-hmm. Facing our fear is getting our power back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fear itself, I don't know, it always bundles emotions like hurt and shame. It's like the emotions yeah. that we don't really like like to touch. So learning to actually become its friend like okay fear we're going today me and you are going and we're gonna do this thing and we're just gonna do it for like five minutes maybe it's leaving the house and it's a teaching to learn to befriend your emotions they're messengers with you so be their friend right that's terrific so that's that i believe that the work of creating a more inclusive and less fear-based world since we're talking about fear working on being more loving and compassionate towards oneself, mm-hmm. others, and even though this is very, very challenging, I'm challenged by this as well, those who hurt us. I'm wondering what your thoughts on that might be. Hey, so a, a lot of times, I don't know how you observe it, maybe it's through social media and all that type of stuff. They are like, compassion, you have to forgive. Well, actually, they don't, they're like, maybe forgive or like, I don't know if it's brushing it away or whatever around the ability to be compassionate is to the people who hurt you to continue to love them. And I do agree with that in a way, but the thing is to be compassionate for them, you have to be compassionate for your story and yourself first. So to authentically Mm -hmm. forgive the people who have hurt you, it's a grief process. First of all, you have to fill your story. A lot of trauma survivors narrate their stories without feeling it. So they can talk about it. They said, I've shared it, but they've not felt it. It's part of this type of disembodiment that happens with trauma. So you have to feel for yourself what you went through. And that journey is a feat. Mm -hmm. At that time, when you're able to feel for yourself, then there is a space where you can remove or move or step back away from your perpetrator or the people that have hurt you so that you can grieve for yourself to say that I didn't deserve that, I deserved more, or I had deserved whatever the context is so that you can allow that grief process for yourself so then you can observe the other. Otherwise, it it might be falsified in a way because you've not felt or grieved for yourself yet. Mm-hmm. Passion comes up in that space because then you've moved away and you can see the perpetrator or the person that hurt you. Again, I'm talking about it simply, but this is a complex type of um, complex work to do. But I'm giving the big image to say when you're able to step back, then you can step back away from your perpetrator a lot or the person that hurt you. And then things happen in that space. You can create a boundary there. 
you can choose what you want to tolerate or, or not. Do you see what I mean? Like you begin to bounder yourself and that's a loving space. And that allows you to love the other from wherever you are. It doesn't mean that you have to accept what's happened and take it in. It's a really tight space. It's a complicated space, but it's a loving space. Yes, absolutely. From my own experiences, I've gone through the mindful self-compassion training. One of the things that they teach us in that class is to titrate. It's about facing our own fear and facing that grief, the sadness and everything that we are holding, all those emotions that we have bottled up inside and starting to open our hearts and to start to actually feel some of that, but using compassion to titrate the amount of feeling so that we don't feel so overwhelmed that we go back to, because I think when you think about some of these, these traumas that we're holding in our bodies can feel like an elephant. I have a, a friend that says to me, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Right. Yeah, exactly. And it, it is, if we're honest, it's terrifying to feel, isn't it? Like to feel your emotions. Everyone's like, Oh, just feel it. But it's terrifying. Yes. And so it's a muscle. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't give you a 500-pound weight right away and say, hey, Giselle, may you hold this, <laughs> you know? I'd start with one pound, you know, maybe maybe five pounds. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's a tolerance. And so you have to build that muscle, that feeling muscle to learn to feel and to say, yeah, I can carry this a little bit longer. I can stay with my feeling a little bit longer. That is such a good analogy because that's exactly what it feels like. You can start with a five-pound. Mm. You're right, I have five-pounder for me. <laughs> And that's how you do muscle training. Right? So we do that for ourselves physically, right? Mm-hmm. To be able to do that for ourselves emotionally. Mm-hmm. Recently, I was triggered by something. I was able to connect that reaction to a trigger that happened in that, like, indirectly, like, on the face, had no connection. But once I actually vocalized what was happening for myself, I made the connection. went, aha, this is an old, old mm-hmm. thing that's coming up to go, <laughs> and I was bawling and bawling and then after that I, I felt I felt a release I felt relieved mm. but in the moment you don't know what's happening you're you feel like you're floundering you right. can't put your finger on it and then just the emotion just comes up yeah yeah that's how it goes and you know the other thing with that too is uh like in a safe space and so I'd assume like there's a safe space for you yeah. So for others too, with the, the when um, witnessing their feelings, uh, it does need a witnessing in a safe space. And so sometimes I use like the therapy room as a sacred space, because in between these four walls, you get to practice whatever you need to around your feelings, to be curious about it, to feel them. And there's something very powerful in witnessing, having a witness when you feel. Otherwise, sometimes feelings get old; they can move a lot. But there's there's a work through that might be needed too, right? Mm-hmm. And so therapy or whatever the safe space is for someone, a witnessing is, can, may be a very powerful tool. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you're right. I do feel like I have a safe space at home that I can be mm-hmm. my authentic self and be able to express those mm-hmm. emotions. Can you talk a little bit about what a safe space might feel like for those that don't know? Mm-hmm. Or maybe how they could create a safe space for themselves? Yeah, at this point... For those who might be listening, to me, I think that's anywhere where you can process your feelings. And that might be in a therapy room, to be honest, Mm -hmm. or a group or something, do you Mm -hmm. know? It just means that it's a space where you can learn to be authentically you. And uh, a space where 
what happens in there stays there. Mm -hmm. It's a trust room, a trust space, and your body's learning to be safe there. And it might be the only space you have. Mm -hmm. And so it's a space like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Until such a time when we can create safe space within ourselves, we have safety within ourselves. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm not there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not there. <laughs> working on that one <laughs> you're opening up a new trauma center please share a little bit more about the work that you'll be doing there and where people can expect to attend your center what i'll be opening in the, the local area right now i'm looking for a facility which has taken a bit of time but i'm allowing the universe to bring it to me it's a trauma health and embodiment center so we're talking a lot about the body today too in a roundabout way just by talking about feeling, but it'll be a facility where it's a healing space, really. It'll be a facility that's a healing space to work with trauma, stigmatization, anxiety, marginalized community, depression, like all these things that are labeled. I'd like to create a space where I can use non-traditional approaches like I do in my wins to wings practice, psychotherapy practice towards deconstructing power dynamics mm -hmm. that can create environments where we mirror trauma in our mental health system. So that's that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. Can you just expand a little bit about deconstructing systems? Yeah, so deconstructing power dynamics. I really am speaking about it neutrally. I'll say that hospitals is a system mm -hmm. and mental health care is a system. Mm -hmm. And so what happens in systems is that, first of all, I have to dismantle trauma and what trauma is because trauma comes in all forms. And so we educate around small T, big T traumas, but trauma also is a, just a form of helplessness and a power over. Yeah. So that can come in many dynamics, mm -hmm. right? And so in that helplessness, you have to do the, you have to go, or you have to continue to repeat this behavior that you're continuing to go towards is power over and that creates a trauma so a child who's helpless and a parent who's abusive they continually have to go home every day after school into the abuse they don't have a choice they're helpless in it that's a form of trauma there's a helplessness in it going into a mental health care system so going into a hospital there's a system approach you have to do this first you have to tell your story billions of times to different people i'm exaggerating yeah. but you know you create this story and then you meet this person but they only work with anxiety or they only work with this symptom of depression if not you have to go to this place and so it's always moving and there's a power over you and so it mirrors back if you think about it trauma which is you're continually helpless yes you yeah. see and it's so easy to fall into the cracks of our system and that's where I work. I'm an activist for the unspoken and the silenced. So they fall into the cracks. So I had to take years to observe what happens in our system, sit, perch myself up on this edge and study where people, how did, how did they get in there? How did they get unnoticed? And this is how this trauma health and embodiment center vision was created. So yeah. Wow. That's what I mean. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. <laughs> Really? I have a dog whom I consider my third child. I love him so much. <laughs> he, uh, we adopted him when he was one year old and he was one of the best decisions I feel we ever made. I didn't want to end the podcast without speaking about your colleague, Solja, because I see that you, you, you play Solja as your colleague of yours. And I was wondering about how you guys work together 
how he assists you in reminding you how to love. Okay, well, Solja is a 21-month-old Labradoodle, and uh, Solja, yeah, is a gift from the universe to me. I really feel that. I got him about eight weeks, and he's in the end stages of his training. He's a registered therapy dog, so his work will be to provide tactile like stimulation, like lying at your feet, like grounding techniques, and affect regulation, so relaxing a trauma brain is what I call it. So just being in a room, as you know, the love that dogs kind of exude in their energy works with symptoms of like PTSD, um, anxiety symptoms and that. And so he's my colleague because he does. Now I read Soldier more than he's probably reading the room because I can read him uh, and I can change my technique, knowing that the client might be having an emotional response or for them to connect to their work and that type of stuff by how he attends toward them. And so that's why he's my colleague. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he creates these calming effects. But I fell in love with him. I was going to just use him as a, you know, as this, uh, the registered therapy dog, but I fell in love with Solja. And I, I'm his owner, proud owner as well. And he does, he's so unconditional um, in his love. And it, it teaches me to do the same. Like mm -hmm. they just non-verbally teach you love, you know. Uh, yes, exactly. They're they're truly present and being in the moment and just loving. I mean, my dog, we believe, came with some trauma. But mm -hmm. then when you see him now, he just wants to be loved. Yeah, so they remind us just by that, you know. And I can be very not present sometimes as much as I'd like to stay present. And he reminds me that. Like, he, he has his way, right? <laughs> and, yeah, it's very important. Thank you for sharing that story. I have a friend who also has a therapy dog and she had shared a story about how there was this client and he was seen as very aggressive and very controlling. It was a particular instance when the client was particularly angry and the dog just knew, came over, put the head on the lap and the person just melted. And then their emotions just started flooding them and they started crying because they remembered when they had a dog as a child the animal's ability to be able to hone in on that and see past the anger, see past the aggression and to see the soul that's in there, right? Which is beautiful. Yeah, that's very powerful. Yeah. I thought it was awesome when I saw it on your website. I was like, oh, it's her colleague. Very cute. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for bringing him in. Yeah. Oh, no worries. So what's next for you so that the uh, listeners can check you out? Okay, well... The Trauma Health and Embodiment Center will be next. It's like an ongoing vision and project that's underway, as well as I'm an author in a chapter of a book that will be coming out in the fall called Embodied Healing. I do trauma yoga, and trauma yoga sometimes gets uh, misconstrued for trauma-informed, trauma-sensitive yoga. But the trauma yoga that I've, I brought here into Canada to do is to work with the movements and shapes of the body, is to work with the brain that's trauma and stuck in a survival loop. And so I had the opportunity to talk about my body healing as a facilitator of this work, as well as my own personal story and allowing my story to be told for, to me from my body to me and reconnecting to my trauma work that way. So I've had the opportunity to write about that and it'll be authored in this book that will be coming out. And yeah, that's big projects that are underway here. Where would people be able to find the trauma yoga? Are they able to do it online with you or? Since the pandemic, we did go online. Mm -hmm. I am situated downtown Kitchener. Oh. I have taken over the wellness room in Queen Street Yoga. 
and we're doing psychotherapy practices in there. And so I do offer seven-week courses to do this trauma yoga. Again, the yoga name gets a bit attached. It is not yoga. It's the shapes and movements that we do that look like yoga, but uh, it is the the trauma work we do. So I do offer those seven-week courses there. In the fall, I'll be opening it up to the BIPOC community only classes, generating a space for different type of work because of the intergenerational traumas on the bodies that way. So again, that's offered downtown Kitchener. Once we return back to the live environment, yeah, people are welcome to find me there. Right now, the online session just ended and I will be doing it in the summer right now, but in the fall, I'll be reintegrating that back. You also have an upcoming podcast as well that will be taped in July. Um, Thank you for asking that. I have been asked to be an ambassador for She's Your Neighbor through the Women Crisis Services of Waterloo Region. And I will be talking about trauma and abuse and Black women because, you know, our migration um, is one of pain and suffering. And there's some enlightenment around that in itself and the embodiment of that, or of being kidnapped. Um, as an analogy in the migration and then the torture and pain that's attached to that and how that's lived out intergenerationally. So I have the opportunity to talk about that in that podcast and uh, yeah, connecting it to domestic violence and trauma and abuse. Wow. Seems like really powerful work. Mm. Thank you so much, Nicole, for sharing your time with us in all the amazing work that you're doing. We're really, really grateful that you took time out to chat and what you're doing every day to help people shift their experiences from wounds to wings. Thank you. Please go check out Nicole's website for the trauma yoga. And lastly, check out the book that's coming out called Embodied Healing, available on Amazon. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. And don't forget to come back and check out more episodes on how to increase loving compassion for ourselves and others in our world.